0: to america's homegrown veggie show i'm daryl pullis and this week i'm talking to organic gardening expert author garden columnist radio personality jessica walliser good morning jessica
1: good morning daryl
0: how are you i am just fine and i hope you are too
1: i am i am fall is here though
0: (laughs) fall is there well fall is just sort of arriving here in atlanta and you're near pittsburgh are you getting lots of good fall
1: color now Uh, It's just starting to color up. I was uh, driving my son home from school yesterday and uh, really starting to pay attention to the colors change starting to happen in the trees. But we have a few more weeks, I think, of good fall color to go. So we're just getting started.
0: We are just barely getting started. Some of the really early stuff, um, like the dogwoods and the poplars, but I think those in large part are also because we had like four weeks where it didn't rain, so they got stressed. And then we got two weeks of where it rained every dang day. <laughs> That's killer weather. But yeah. it's beautiful now and I'm going to enjoy it. Now, Jessica, you are another person, another female interested in bugs and I find that fascinating because until, oh, maybe 20 years ago, I never heard of a lady entomologist. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I don't think there's too too many, uh, but I'll tell you what, the, the entomologists that I have gotten to interview uh, over the course of my career uh, has have just been phenomenal, both male and female, uh, and it's really lovely. Uh, in my latest book, I really got to connect with the entomological community at universities and at the USDA, and there's really some smart cookies out there in entomology. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a horticulturist, uh, not an uh-huh. entomologist, but I just have an incredible fascination with the insect world that just sort of came about because uh, I made the realization of how closely connected our plants are to the insect world, and it sort of seems to me um, a little bit ignorant on a gardener's part to not really realize and foster that connection because it really can be so good for the garden. So it was such a pleasure to get to interview these people who spend their lives studying insects and really help make the connection uh, between the gardening world and the insect world
0: we have some really great people down here at uga and i they're my go-to people if i ever have a question and mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether you've met chris Bremen, but she did some of the original work on beneficial insects on some of our landscape pests. wonderful and that yeah. was probably going back close to 20 years now or maybe even yeah. more
1: yeah, and there's uh, like Gwendolyn Allen. She's uh, at Oregon State, and she does a really great program about beneficial insects up there. Uh, there's Leslie Allay, who's with uh, Dr. John Lucy in um, at Cornell, and she works on the Lost Ladybug Project, which is uh, one of the projects that I featured in uh, my most recent book, Attracting Beneficial Insects or Excuse Me, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden. Uh, and the Lost Ladybug Project is talking about some of our species of native ladybugs that are in major decline if not actually extinct and that project is really amazing as well so we do have all these great female entomologists and and folks in that community who are really doing some great work i think that's absolutely marvelous
0: and i think women because we tend to maybe worry about the planet a little bit more maybe that's being sexist but i think part of the nurture thing is that we are more interested in what's around us and saving the planet For kids and grandkids and things like that, than the guys are, but that's not to say the guys don't do marvelous work either. But I'm I'm just really tickled to death that there are so many out there. And now, did you have an aha moment when you, you know, when you were looking at plants or something and said, ah, you know, why are we poisoning all this stuff? Or what happened?
1: Yeah, I kind of, I have had a couple different aha moments in my career. Um, Like I mentioned before, I went to uh, college for horticulture. I went to Penn State University, have a degree in horticulture. Um, I I was taught basically, you know, what chemicals to use to control pests and that pests, uh, you know, insect pests were the enemy and that's all they were to a gardener. And so it really wasn't until I got out into the real world when I had my first aha moment, which was... Uh, I was a certified pesticide applicator, and I was spraying Malathion on an ornamental plum tree for Japanese beetles. And I was up on the six-foot-tall ladder, you know, spraying the tree, and the wind was blowing in my face. I had no—I shorts and a T-shirt on, oh, no chemical-resistant <laughs> gloves, no respirator, no nothing. You know, you're 21 years old. You're, you think you're invincible, right? Uh-huh. So I'm up there doing this, and and I got back in the crew truck at the end of the day, In this, you know, big burly guy I was working with, his name was Randy, and uh, he was married to a horticulturist who uh, maintained one of the biggest estates here in the Pittsburgh region. And he basically poured his heart out to me, started telling me that they were having trouble conceiving, she was having all these health problems, and her doctor said to her, if you don't stop exposing yourself to chemicals, you're going to have a lot worse problems than these. And he looked at me in the crew truck on the drive back to the, the crew shed, and he said, you know, I don't want that to be you someday. You really should be wearing a respirator and using the gloves, and you need to ask our boss to get you all that stuff. And it was really a moment for me where I thought, my gosh, if he's, he is here he is, you know, in his late 20s, early 30s, and he's pouring his emotional heart out to me in a truck. Maybe this is something I ought to think about. And went and asked for the respirator and all the equ- proper equipment. And had it within a week. I should have had it long before then, looking back now. But uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it all worked out. And it was really okay. a moment to me where I thought, hmm. And then I went out and had my own landscaping company and uh, and still sprayed. You know, I was a little safer about how I did it, but I still did it. And then I hired this woman to work for me who was an organic farmer. And she really started to teach me that there were better ways to do things. And that's where I really started to make the connection of, you know, how we can eliminate chemicals, synthetic chemicals from the garden, and how we can still have a fabulous, gorgeous, productive garden without needing all of that stuff. So she f- made a second aha moment. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then a few years ago, I had my third aha moment, which was I was watching television with my husband, and we were watching the David Attenborough BBC documentary, Life in the Undergrowth. And I don't Wonderful know if you've seen program. it. Yes, it, I love it. 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 Incredible! This this uh, micro photography of insects and it's high def and it's really really cool. And there was this moment, and I describe it in the book where there's two leopard slugs and they're mating and they hang from this slimy thread from a tree to mate. And they're hermaphroditic, so they both have the male parts. And they and it, it, I have a picture of it in the book, and it's absolutely ridiculously crazy. And I and I was watching this on TV, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's going on out in my garden right now and i always thought of slugs as the enemy but yet they're engaged in this really glorious moment of nature as glorious as a couple of lions or elephants or you know or monarch butterflies and here they are doing this and i'm thinking maybe i should appreciate them a little more than i do and that's really where my love of insects in the garden came from that's fascinating
0: and I agree that it's a wonderful, wonderful show. I don't think he's done anything bad, but that that one in particular was a, a real good one. Um, now, did you go, when you were doing all this, did you have any idea that you might start writing about them?
1: Well, I had a book that came out in 2008 called Good Bug, Bad Bug. And that came mm-hmm. out with St. Lynn's Press, and it's done really well. It's been an Amazon bestseller. It's a, it's a little spiral-bound field guide to the insects that you find in in your garden Um, and it has a lot of pest insects and then in the back of the book it has uh, beneficial insects as well and in researching that book um, I really sort of started to switch my focus from paying attention to the bad bugs to paying attention to the good bugs and really instead of spending so much time and money and energy battling the pests if we could all switch our attention to promoting and encouraging the beneficial insects, we would find that we would regain this natural balance back to our gardens. And in all the gardens that I maintained when I had my garden maintenance company, which was about 40 gardens in and around the city of Pittsburgh, um, and what I found was that when I switched them all from chemical dependency to organic, gardening practices what happened was over the course of about two years we really got a balance back in all of those gardens and we very seldom had pest outbreaks because we had all of the beneficial predatory insects helping us keep the pest numbers in check it was a learning process for sure not just for me but for all of my clients as well but i really found that that balance was there once we gave it a chance
0: and you said it took you about two years for the properties
1: Yeah, it was about a two-year transition period um, where we really found that it was sort of like, you know, it's like getting a junkie, right? Getting a junkie off a crack. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to um, realize that there are steps that you need to go through in the process of converting a garden from chemical care to to natural care and it's something that if you can prepare people and you can tell them you know this is what's going to happen next and then we'll go through this and then we'll go through that you know if you let them know what to expect and teach them not to panic um, it really makes that transition process a lot easier
0: I know it can be difficult because when we moved here, the people that had owned the property before we purchased it had been big into spray. And there was not a ladybug. There was not a surfed fly. There was, you know, all there were were flies from the chicken farms around. That were, it, was, it was pretty dreadful. But it took me about two years. And I have not used a pesticide except a hornet killer. And I even hated to use that because... I love the hornets and for the job that they do in the garden, but one of them decided they were going to build a nest right by the back door where it was just too close for comfort. But I, I, other than that, I just don't use them because, well, and I, I confess, I handle yellow jackets too if they're someplace where we have to be because my husband a few years back ran the lawnmower over one that was... Really in an unusual place, and he got pretty badly stung. But other than that, I don't use pesticides, and I'm, I'm just blown away by how many beneficial insects we have. I Even the other day, I came across, I've, I've got a little metal statue. Remember when metal things were popular a few years mm-hmm. back? And somebody gave me a little metal turtle with an open mouth, and I saw what looked like a mason bee going in there. Mm-hmm.
1: That's yeah. just cool yeah it really is, and it's you know a lot of people don 't realize that when they 're using a uh, product to control a pest in the garden, whether it 's horticultural oil or insecticidal soap or you know some some terrible chemical, you know whatever you 're using it 's also impacting beneficial insects in some way, whether that is directly impacting them by exposing them to the toxin and killing them outright. Or it's removing a portion of their food source. So if you get rid of those aphids, even by squirting them off of the plant with a sharp stream of water, you are kind of putting yourself into a process where you really don't belong, and you're getting rid of a food source for those beneficials right when they were about to arrive. Um, and and a lot of people don't realize that that those actions that you take in the garden have a direct impact on the balance of good and bad or you know the prey and predators in the garden they they have a a direct impact on that and we we play we gardeners play a very important role that sometimes we shouldn't have a part in that we really need to step back and just let nature take its course in many instances not in every instance though Um, and this is particularly true when it is a pest and sick that's been introduced um, from another area, and, and we should probably talk about that at some point, because things like the emerald ash borer uh, and other introduced pests that don't have beneficial insects um, to keep their numbers in check, you know, that's a whole different ballgame, and that, we, you know, that needs to be addressed in a different way. Wow. Yes, we will talk about that, because, of course, we're getting a lot of new pests,
0: um, We have Asian Ambrosia Beetle in our area that's pretty bad. The the brown marmorated stink bugs have come in. Lordy, lordy, there's a whole bunch of them. But we have to take a little break right now, and we'll be back right after this.
2: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pulis and this week I'm talking to organic gardening expert and author Jessica Walliser. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the introduced pests. So let's talk about them when we're talking about needing to do interventions.
1: Yeah, so I think the important thing to realize with, um, you know, introduced pests is that in an undisturbed ecosystem, and this is across the whole planet, we have a phenomenon that is called the predator and prey cycle. And you probably learned about it back in chemistry in seventh grade, or back in biology in seventh grade, when you learned that, uh, you know, maybe it was the cycle of the field mice and the owls. You know, when when the field mice, when it was a good year for grains, and the field mice population went really up, and there was a lot of field mice there, then the predator population, which would be owls or foxes or minks, right, their population goes up as a result because there's all this food available for them. Eventually, the foxes and the coyotes and the owls eat all of the field mice, and their population begins to decline again. So we have this sort of cycle of the rise of prey followed by the rise of their predators, and then drop off of prey followed by the drop off in the population of predators and this cycle happens over and over again kind of like an undulating line right, Uh, between the prey and the predator and that's an undisturbed ecosystem so if we take that from the mammal world down to the insect world, and let's use aphids as an example. When we have an aphid that finds a plant and it starts to feed on the plant, uh, it begins to produce more progeny, and as you probably already know, female aphids are born with live clones of themselves already inside of them. They don't even need a male aphid in order to reproduce, so if they find a suitable food source, they're going to start to reproduce, and their population is going to go up, That population will really start to rise and it will start to go up. And and just about the time it hits the pinnacle of that uh, curve, that undulating curve, is when the predators will really start to take notice. So the things like the ladybugs and the parasitic wasps and the generalist predators like the lacewings, they'll start to see the the aphids there as a food source, and their population will start to rise. Well, what happens is the gardener steps in right around the same point that the predator predatory insects were about to arrive and help control those aphids. And we do something like spray them with horticultural oil, or we squish them with our fingers, or we you know squirt them off with a stream from the hose. And what we've done is we've inserted ourselves into that predator and prey cycle where we really don't belong. And we don't give, we're not patient enough to give the beneficial insects time to help control that pest population naturally. So it's a cycle that occurs that first of all we need to step back out of. The trouble with introduced insects is that they don't have any or they have only very few natural predators in their new environment. So when the brown marmorated stink bugs were introduced, and they were actually introduced here to Pennsylvania first, so I've got lots of experience with them, when they were introduced here they had no predatory uh, insects or, or birds or anything that recognized them as a food source. There was no cycle of predator and prey established for them here in North America. So their population exploded. There was no system checks, of checks and balances to keep them regulated. What has happened here in Pennsylvania, since we've had them now for 10 years, is actually a little longer than that even. We are starting to see uh, the birds. I actually, my chickens now eat them. Uh, We're starting to see several species of birds. We're seeing um, general predators like praying mantises. We're starting to see those um, eat them. Assassin bugs are starting to eat them. It takes a few generations for the predators to recognize this prey as a food source. And so when we have these introduced pests come over, that's the time when many times we have to step in with a product control because there are no natural predators there uh, to bring their population And And that is one time where I say, you know, if it's getting to the point where it's really going to kill your plant, that might be a point when you have to step in and do something about it.
0: Now, you mentioned right before the break, the emerald ash borer. Is there anything that's preying on that yet?
1: Well, this is a good question, and, and here's what the USDA is working on. And I talked with Dr. Joseph Pat for the book. I did an interview with him, and he works for the USDA. And he works in particular on a pest called the Asian citrus psyllid, which is this tiny, tiny little pest that, that is the, the vector for a disease called citrus greening. Uh, and it's also called, I think it's pronounced Hualongbing, which is a... Uh, it's Asian name. It is an Asian pest, and it's an Asian disease that has come over to North America, and it's pretty much in all of our citrus-growing regions right now. Um, and his job is he's looking at. Introducing some predators and parasitoids of that Asian citrus psyllid, and introducing them to North America to help naturally control that psyllid, because it only takes one little teeny tiny psyllid to transmit this disease and completely kill a citrus tree. And we've, I think, Florida alone has had to literally bulldoze 500,000 acres of citrus because of this pathogen. So it's a major, major issue with our citrus industry. So he's. You know they're they're looking that people these researchers that work on this look at introducing um, predators from the native range of this introduced pest, bringing them to North America and helping to control. It's not taken lightly because they don't want to affect any native sillets. So if you look at something like the emerald ash borer, and they're looking at introducing some um, you know parasitic wasps or perhaps a tachinid fly or some other very specialized. Parasitoid that will only target those, you know, Asian longhorn beetles because they, or um, excuse me, emerald ash borers because they don't want to affect any of our native beetles. So they look very specifically at what to release. I don't know if they have released one here yet or not. Um, that'd be something I'd have to do a little bit of research on. But it's something that I know that they're constantly looking at. You know, what kind of effects will these introduced predators have on our native? Species that are similar to things like the emerald ash borer, but we've we've lost about eight ash trees on our property alone um, here in western Pennsylvania. There's almost no um, ashes standing anymore uh, that are still alive, uh, unless they've been treated with uh, systemic chemical to help control those emerald ash borer. There's pretty much no chance for them.
0: And what is your point? What is your take on imidacloprid and other? Um...
1: Well. Yeah, those systems. you know we
0: we look at the neonic's and the bees and everything like that,
1: and and I'm really yeah. of two minds. Yeah, it's 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 hard, and you know one of the things that I discovered in writing this book and talking to these people who spend their lives working on this is that you know I can read and study and I can have this this opinion, but it's really just that it's really only opinion because the smartest people in the world are working on this and they still don't have the answers I mean they're dedicating their lives to it you know my gut tells me and the research that I've read tells me yet I know that these systemic chemicals are carried in the plant's system and they're therefore in the nectar and in the pollen and that is you know consumed by ladybugs it's carried back to you know beehives it's it's it, it's in the food chain there is absolutely no doubt about that and it does affect insect life so you know my feeling personally is that you know if you ever choose to use those things, by golly, that you know there's going to be a lot of collateral damage as a result, um, and that's that's a tough thing to swallow as an organic gardener. Um, you know, when you have to make that decision, geez, do I lose my ash tree because of this imported insect, or do I risk it and use something like an imidacloprid or another uh, systemic that that then goes up into the food chain? And it's really it's a, it's a really personal. Decision and it should not be taken lightly by any gardener anywhere.
0: That is, it, it's a really tough thing to to determine whether you should or should not because you know you look at the ash trees and I know when I was growing up the Midwest was just covered in ash trees. It was the main thing. It was, you know, I was also at the tail end of chestnuts and lived through the uh, through the elm problem and saw all those elm trees dying and. So I don't know what I would do if, I, I guess since I only have one ash tree and they're not all that common here, I would probably would let it go to the ash borer if, God forbid, it ever gets down here. Um, but it's it's really tough.
1: It is. And, it, you know, it's a self-made problem. I mean, we've done it. We, Our global, you know, the way the world is right now, and goods are moved so readily and in such massive quantities from, from one part of the world to the other. I mean, you know, we, we've done it to ourselves, and, and we have nobody to blame but us because there's not an ocean anymore separating us from, from Asia. It's just, you know, a boat that comes over, and and that's it, and it's just you know, one insect or, or just a handful of insects that, that can really cause a, a complete ecological destruction in, in certain parts of the country where they're, they're moved to and they don't belong. And again, it's because there's no system, natural system of checks and balances in place for them. And it's really, you know, we talk about global climate change and, and it's such an issue and it truly, truly is. But this is an issue that's really flying under the radar. I mean, we have the potential to have... You know, complete collapses of ecosystems from things like the hemlock woolly adelgid. You know, that's not just killing a hemlock tree in the woods; it's literally killing an entire ecosystem because the hemlock tree shades the river, and if if the river now gets full sun, an entire species of, of fish can't live there anymore, or snails. And you know, we have this whole little ecosystem that has evolved now fails because that tree was killed by the hemlock woolly adelgid, and Uh, And and the white pine blister beetles, now we don't have the pine nuts for the grizzly bears. And the grizzly bears are now coming down out of the mountains and closer to humans uh, because they have a major food source that is now no longer available to them. So it's not just that it kills that plant. It's that there's a chain reaction that follows the result of the death of that plant. And that's the saddest part. My
0: in-laws have a place up in North Carolina And my husband and I would drive up there to visit, and over the years, watching all those hemlocks go, and now worse, a little bit of rain, and without the duff that dropped from the hemlock trees, uh, there's an awful lot of erosion, and the streams silt up, so it just keeps tumbling and tumbling and tumbling around.
1: And that's that's the thing. That's again. That's that chain reaction uh, of what happens when something like this occurs in a, an ecosystem that has been, you know, functioning just fine for for millennia, and then all of a sudden we have this little glitch in it. And it, it's 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 really really hard to know how powerless we all are, are in it, but yet we're the cause of it. So, you know, gardeners... And the thing is, gardeners have a huge role to play in this. We might, You might not think that you as a gardener can make a big difference, right? But the fact is, there are millions and millions, if not billions, of people that garden. And collectively we can make a huge difference in, in the impact on insect species. And that's an important thing I think maybe that we can talk about in the next segment is really what we as an individual gardener can do to help placate some of this and some of what's happening in our world. And and there are some easy things that we can put in place to do that.
0: That is a very, very powerful statement that we as gardeners can do something about that. Because I think a lot of the times we just feel... Helpless when we see something being devoured, or devoured, or your ash trees or the hemlocks up in the North Carolina mountains, and you look at that, and you know even even things like the monarchs and the other butterflies, people at least are now getting to know that they can make a difference. The the Monarch Watch pro- programs and in, in planting, I think it's a marvelous way for people to get. Involved and, and, and when they're getting involved, I think it's giving them also more knowledge so they can look at other bugs in a different light, too. We're going to have to take a little break pretty soon, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about beneficial insects and what gardeners can do. We'll be right back after this break.
3: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com
1: Welcome back to
0: America's Homegrown Veggie Show Today we're talking about bugs with Jessica Walliser who's author of Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Gardens A Natural Approach to Pest Control and a great little field guide called Good Bug, Bad Bug and I, I think both of, you need to put both of those on your holiday shopping list um, because I, I love the way especially Good Bug, Bad Bug it's spiral bound so you can flip it open carry it out to the garden with you and, and stare at the bug in front of you as well as staring at um, the picture and seeing what they're ab- actually up to.
1: The <laughs> cat yeah, it's a, a great little field guide. You know, when I wrote that in 2008, and we ended up going into uh, a, redoing it and doing a second edition in 2011, um, you know, I didn't realize how handy it would be for so many people. Kids love it, really too. Um, it's just a useful, useful little bu- book um, to have out in the garden with you for sure. Um, yeah,
0: and it's not so expensive. You know, like I've got some really expensive entomology books that I would never dare carry carry out to the garden. This is something that if you splash a little bit of water on it, you're not going to cry and, and have a temper tantrum about it.
1: Right, and you're not going to ruin it either. That's why we made it with those nice, sturdy, heavy, thick pages um, that you 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 know you can get wet and you can get mud on them and it, they, it literally just wipes off. Uh, so it's a nice little handy guide for sure. Yeah, that's why it was made. So I'm glad you're using it for what it's made <laughs> for. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's
0: really good because it, it doesn't overwhelm you. Um, you can look out there and you give tips for how to identify sometimes the good bugs and the bad bugs. What would you say if, you're, if somebody's out in their garden and they're looking at a bug and they see some damage on their plant, what do they look for next to know whether yes. the bug that's on there did the damage or whether it was somebody that's come and gone or maybe a disease and not even an insect?
1: Right, right, and, and that all goes back to education. And you know, before the break, we were talking about what gardeners can do um, to really kind of help with um, some of the effects that we're seeing on the earth from from our globalization and, and uh, deforesting and all that kind of stuff. And this comes back to what you're talking about right now, and that is the education part, um, is that really instead of reacting automatically to some kind of damage that we see in our garden, we as gardeners need to start taking pause and thinking about not just how can I get rid of that pest, but instead... Um, you know, geez, how does this fit into the ecosystem of my garden? And how can I learn about this insect and figure out what I can do? Are there other things I can do besides spray something that gets will get rid of this pest? Um, and I think that your you, you know your your idea of stopping and looking and thinking hard before taking any action in the garden is the very first step in all of that, of knowing whether, you know, that's the pest that's actively feeding or if it's a disease instead or if it was a completely other insect that's not on the plant right now is really educating yourself. It's getting some good books or an app for your smartphone or, you know, some sort of resource, going to a good website where you can really properly identify where that damage is coming from before you, you take any actions. That's that's definitely step number one. And then it's really finding, you know, are there ways that you could have prevented it in the first place? Um, you know, and during our break, we were talking and you, you mentioned that you were having, you know, problems with cabbage worms on your broccoli and aphids and things on your broccoli and your cabbage. And my question to you is, why don't you have them growing under row cover?
0: Because... Um, I always used to grow under row covers, and when I would teach the master gardener classes and the home gardener classes, I always told people, get your row cover, and I would pass it around, but right now, my, I'm getting kind of old and feeble, and my garden is in my driveway, and it's all in containers, and it would look really funky. I did kind of think about getting some tulle and maybe some bridal-type ribbons and wrapping them up like little brides, mm-hmm. but, um... You know, I, my neighbors think I'm weird anyway. <laughs> well, we don't need to give them any, any more ammunition. But yes, I, I do agree that, it, you know, prevention is so much easier in in a garden, especially a vegetable garden. Get that floating row cover down. or And people don't realize that the floating row cover is also going to protect the plants from... Wind damage if you're in a windy area or uh, from pounding heavy rains. And it's cheap too.
1: It is, and I have had mine same sheets of them for probably over 10 years. Um, so they can be used year after year. You just wash them out in a bucket and hang them up to dry at the end of the season. And the, the, the prevention really does go a, a long, long way. Uh, but uh, but in my garden, you know, yes, I use the row covers, and yes, I employ an awful lot of prevention, especially for things like squash vine borers that can literally, one, one of them can outright kill kill the whole plant. Um, but I, I also allow space for the pest insects in my garden because I have come to realize, and this is kind of one of the of attracting beneficial bugs to your garden is that, you know, these bugs have a very important role in the ecosystem. It's not just how they influence the plants that we're going to eat, but it's that they are food sources for many of uh, larger insects and for songbirds and so on up the food chain. And we need to have some amount of what we consider pests or insects around in order to support the greater ecosystem and so In thinking that you have to have a garden that's completely pest-free, I mean, that's just completely backwards thinking. You have to have caterpillars in there, because without caterpillars, we wouldn't have songbirds. Um, You know, you have to have these pest insects. And you even have to have those hornets and the yellow jackets that, yeah, I know this time of year, they are incredibly aggressive, and I wouldn't want them by my back door either. But the the number of, of caterpillars that they consume, and I... Literally, this summer, one of my favorite things to do was watch my cabbage plants, which had cabbage worms all over them, and I'm okay with that, actually, and I watched, and I have some videos that I took of it, I watched paper wasps come, and creep around on the plants looking for cabbage worms they would find one they would attack it and they would carry it off to their nest to rear their young and so they were sort of serving as a natural pest control for me on my cabbage plants and i love to see that kind of stuff taking place because i know then that my garden is playing a greater role it's not just providing food to my family but it's also providing for all of these other creatures that share this part of the world with me
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I thought I was the only crazy person that liked to watch wasps and hornets taking care of my garden for me Uh, I mentioned the one hornet's nest that I did have to get rid of that was right too close but we had another one that was maybe 15 feet away from our back porch and it was right in the corner of the house it wasn't any place where we would walk or do anything and so I left it there and all summer long I watched them go back and forth to my garden, it was terrific and, and later on, when it got to be fall and they, um, they were dispersing for the autumn, the wrens came in and enlarged their entrance hole a little bit, and they spent a good bit of time in there, I guess, cleaning out yeah. the remains.
1: Yeah, yeah, because, you know, as you know, and I think it's important that we mention to people, those paper wasp nests and ground, uh, you know, the yellow jackets nests that build in the ground, they're they're only used for one year, and then they're abandoned. Only the fertilized queens will survive the winter, and they go and hide under leaf litter or, uh, you know, under the bark of a tree. That's where they live for the wintertime. So this time of year, the, the uh, you know, bald-faced hornets and the yellow jackets and the paper wasps, they're aggressive right now because they know it's the end (laughs) and and they need to do whatever they can to protect their queen and so that's why this time of year they get super aggressive um and then and then they all just die it's just a mass die off that that paper nest that's still hanging up in your tree you should let it go and and let it hang up there because they are sort of territorial and they tend the new queens when they emerge in the spring will tend not to build a nest where near where there's already one hanging Um, and so they'll stay away from that so it's you can leave those up you don't need to take them down Um, i do agree though that by the back door is not a safe place to have them because they they do this time of year are very very aggressive Uh, but if it's up in a tree or hanging on a phone line or something like that just let it go There, there will be nobody living in it next year
0: I thought that that was a, just a, a fallacy or old wives' tale that they that the queens wouldn't move in where there was another nest. It's good to know. Yeah, uh, and, and it, it explains a lot why I didn't get another nest in my dogwood tree where I was expecting it to, because it was a perfect place for the for the hornets to be uh, yeah. one year, and then they didn't yeah, I've heard come
1: people- back. I've heard people on both sides of the fence. I've heard some um, folks say that oh, it doesn't matter; that they'll 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 build right near the queen. Won't recognize that, or she'll know that it's an abandoned nest. But then I've also heard from other folks who say, you know, yes, they are definitely territorial, and it may not be that it will would would prevent her very early in the season, but it might prevent you know later on in the season from them kind of going into that territory but in my experience we actually bought one of those fake nests that you can buy Mm -hmm. um, and because we were getting they were starting to build nests inside of my son's treehouse, and so we put up one of the fake ones and ever since we put that up we have not had any new you know females come in to try to build a nest so it's worked for us
0: (laughs) that's a good tip for people because i know you know even though they do a lot of good as we've said they, they can be a menace particularly for people that are allergic even though they're generally not aggressive you know i normally walk around in the garden and i've had bees come up and investigate me and and i don't bother them and they don't bother me and you know until this time of year when they start right. well, getting a little little yeah. testy yeah, the or unless you know, unless you go and you bother their nest, like the little boy down the street that was throwing rocks at the hornet's nest, and found out why we don't throw rocks at a hornets. Right.
1: Nest. <laughs> yeah, that's just a general bad <laughs> idea, you know. But they're they're and they're entirely different than than bees. Um, you know, the wasps and yellow jackets and hornets are completely different um, than our bees. And you probably already know there's about four thousand species of native bees um, in North America. European honeybees obviously are introduced, but they've very important to our agricultural system for sure but the little native bees are something also that we can foster in our gardens and, and for a long time they were ignored because so many of them are, are just teeny tiny and you, you really have to look close uh, to see their beautiful colors and see what they're doing in the garden but they play a, a fantastic role uh, in the ecosystem of the garden and they really should be encouraged and in the vegetable garden they definitely can help increase yields because of the lack of European honeybees um, in so many parts of our country now these little native bees really have an opportunity to pick up the the pollination slack. Uh, Things like the squash bees, which pollinate all members of the squash family. And they nest in the ground by themselves. They're they're lone nesters, so it's just one in a burrow uh, right in, actually, where you grow your squash. So be on the lookout for for native bees like that. Many of them are very docile. They don't sting. They don't live in social communities. It's just they're either, you know, live by themselves in a little cavity or, uh, like, a bumblebee might have a 20 or 30 um, in a nest so these are other beneficial insects that really can be fostered in the garden they don't necessarily help us with pest control but they sure do help us with pollination and obviously without them we humans wouldn't be here so there's something that should be paid attention to the other day i had a uh, i was out in my garden and
0: waiting and hoping that some beneficials would find the um the cabbage worms and the aphids and i noticed what looked like a mason bee going into a little garden ornament that i had that had a little tiny tube for a mouth and i thought that was just the coolest thing in the world and do you recommend that people bring in mason bees and other pollinators
1: Um, I don't. I think, for me, um, the research that I've read says that it's um, much more important that you foster your indigenous communities than importing them, because when you import them, you can introduce pathogens and all kinds of other um, issues, parasites and things like that. So it's much better to foster um, your populations that already live there, and maybe in the next segment we can talk about some ways that, that we can do that. Okay,
0: that sounds like a fun thing, because I didn't even know they were out there, but I, and I thought about buying them, and I said, no, nah, I'll just wait, and wait, I'm glad I did. We'll be right back with more of America's Homegrown Veggies after this.
3: When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
2: This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm here with Jessica Walliser, who is an insect expert by, by I guess, by passion. He started out as a horticulturist. And so let's talk a little bit about how people can um, attract these insects, these beneficial insects into your garden. One of the things I liked about your book, your Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden book, is that you go through lots and lots of different um predators and parasit uh, bugs for your garden and then you talk about also with um about the plants that they like and then you go even farther and you give them you give planting directions and and little garden designs so people can make their own insectaries that's a word that most people probably haven't heard before maybe we should start with that
1: Yeah, so an insectary planting is uh, a plant or a group of plants that is incorporated into a garden's design specifically for the purpose of attracting and supporting particular insects. It might be a pollinator garden, uh, which is not what this book focuses on, but there are certainly lots of books out there uh, that talk about building pollinator gardens. I know lots of master gardener groups are doing that these days, um, again, to foster some of those native bee species that we talked about in the last segment. Um, This book largely, however, focuses on creating Insectory plantings that attract and support beneficial predatory and parasitoidal insects. So these are the members of the insect world that help us control some of the quote-unquote bad insects or pest insects in our gardens and our landscapes. So by including certain plants in our garden plans, we will provide Uh, resources for these predatory insects so that we can get a natural reduction um, in some of the pest species that we see in our gardens on a regular basis. So, you know, in order to understand which plants we need to plant in our garden to have this happen, we need to understand about the beneficial insects. And that's why the first part of the book focuses on the insects themselves. And it has profiles of things like big-eyed bugs and assassin bugs and damsel bugs and uh, fireflies and dragonflies and ground beetles and minute pirate bugs. There are literally tens of thousands of species of insects that live in our garden that help us control pests. Um, and so the first part of the book really focuses on those insects, how they work in the garden, what kinds of pests they consume, and then a little bit about their life cycle. And all of that matters because for almost all of these insects, at some stage in their lives, not only do they eat the protein that's found in you know aphids and other pests, but they also need the carbohydrates found in pollen and nectar. And with all of these bugs, if you think about, let's just use the cover gorilla beneficial insects, which is probably the ladybug. And if you think about what kind of mouth part a ladybug has, it doesn't have a mouth part like a bee or a butterfly, which is, you know, kind of a longer mouth part that can access nectar from deep tubular flowers. Most of these beneficial insects have little mouth parts. They need shallow, exposed nectaries. Um, so we can look to members like of the carrot family, like dill and fennel and angelica uh, and caraway. And these little tiny exposed nectaries are really good for supporting these beneficial insects. So that's one group of plants that you can include in your garden as an insectary plant to support these predatory insects. And that family is not just good for ladybugs. It's good for all kinds of parasitic wasps and chachnid flies, and all types of other, my new pirate bugs, and lots of little other beneficial insects that will use that as a nectar source as they're eating the pests. I always like to
0: let a few things go to seed, like um, my cilantro and carrots, maybe just a couple of carrots and some lettuce, is it's just fascinating to see how many insects use those flowers.
1: It really is. My parsley is blooming right now. It's in full flower. And I love to go out every day and see the, you know, the the flies or hover flies uh, all over that plant. And that's an example of a plant, the sear fly, or excuse me, an exam, example of an insect that as the adult, which is the, the fly itself, it's a great pollinator. And it's actually their larvae that are predaceous. So the syrphid fly, or hoverflies, uh, which you see all over the place in the summertime, you know, drinking nectar from members of the carrot family and members also of the uh, daisy family, or asteraceae. Um, they feed on those very heavily as well. We see them flitting about the garden, um, you know, and they're in their adult form. But when they're larvae, uh, they're actually these little tiny maggots. They are larvae of a fly, so they're called maggots. And they crawl around colonies of aphids and other pests. And they eat them, and so it's not something we necessarily would see unless we take a very, very close look at what's happening in the garden. So the next time you have a colony of aphids on your broccoli or your Brussels sprouts plant, um, don't just automatically squish them with your fingers. Get in there and start paying attention to them. Give it a couple of weeks for these predators to start to show up, and you'll start to see. And I have pictures in the book of, of what these syrphid fly look like. You'll start to notice them crawling around those aphids and eating them you'll start to see certain species of uh, parasitic wasps that are so tiny they're they're no bigger than a gnat and they can land on the back of an aphid and insert an egg uh, into the aphid and the larva will then um, you know live its entire larval stage inside of the aphid and you don't know what they look like unless you you know see them in a book first and you understand what they're doing and then you understand that you need to step back and let them do their job in the garden.
0: You know, I've never actually seen one, but I love watching for the aphids. And like I did this time, you know, eventually you see a couple of aphids swell up. And you know, oh boy, my friends have been at work here. And then a little while later, you see that there's a little hole cut in the top of it. And you know that that parasitic wasp's life cycle has has gone on. In the meantime, the aphids have stopped feeding and they die.
1: Yeah, and that's the, the, those are called aphid mummies. When they get, when you're looking at a colony of aphids, whether they're gray or brown or green, because they come in all different colors, uh, and you start to see a couple of them that are you described swollen, and that's definitely it. And they sort of turn brown, and it's just like a brown husk of an aphid, uh, and that is a clear sign that you have a good population of predatory wasps in there that are helping to control that population of aphids naturally. The thing about beneficial insects is they'll, they'll never completely wipe out a population of pests. Why would they do that, right? They want to have food for their progeny. They want to they reproduce. There needs to be food there for their young. So they're not going to completely wipe out um, any any population of pests. Their goal, which should also be our goal as a gardener, is to have a good, healthy balance where, yes, there are pests, but they're balanced out by the number of good bugs that we have in the garden. So the second half of the book is focused on the plants that will encourage these beneficial insects, the right ones to provide nectar from them. And I mentioned the carrot family, and I mentioned the daisy family, or asteraceae. Those are two very, very good plant families to have in our garden everywhere, whether it's a dedicated insectary border or you're just incorporating these plants into your vegetable garden and your flower beds, Those are two good families to turn to. A lot of us probably already have these plants in our garden. We're probably already growing dill. We might already be growing black-eyed susans or asters or boltonia uh, in the landscape. But we need to put more of them in there. We need to start really purposefully incorporating them into our gardens so that we can encourage these good insects. And then we need to stop using pesticides so that we're, you know, not impacting the good insects as well. And the other thing I always suggest to people that you do uh, to promote beneficial insects is do your garden cleanup in the spring instead of in the fall because all of these insects need a place to overwinter. They need somewhere to take shelter. Uh, during the winter time and many of them will do that in fallen leaves they'll do that in hollow plant stems they'll do that in all the debris that is supposed to be left behind over the winter months so instead of putting your garden to bed by cutting everything down in the fall just let it go let everything stand and then do your cleanup in the spring and this is especially important for perennial gardens and ornamental grass beds leave that shelter there Um, Obviously, in the vegetable garden, if something was diseased or, you know, you've got blight on the tomatoes, that you need to get out of there in the fall because you don't want to overwinter those pathogens. But everything else should be left to stand. I really like the idea of leaving things in the fall for the
0: animals and wildlife. And it's amazing how many birds and things will be flicking around underneath the leaves and see. But how do you explain what you're doing to the neighbors?
1: To explain anything to my neighbors. Uh, you know, I, I do, uh, my gardens are beautiful and they know how beautiful they are in season and I think that they also think they're beautiful out of season as well. I mean, I think one of the things that we as gardeners need to do is really consider how everything is going to look in the winter, especially if we're going to be leaving things standing. So instead of choosing plants that might flop over in the winter, try to choose things with sturdier stems that will stand more upright. Um, you know, when the snow flies and and again, for me it's really worth it i I don't think at all that a garden standing through the winter looks junky or looks unkempt. I think it looks beautiful. I think it adds a lot of texture to the landscape um, and it's actually better for the plants in the long run because it does help insulate them. Um, Up here in the north, it helps insulate them from winter temperatures, so there's nothing wrong with leaving those plants stand. It's sort of changing your notion of what beautiful is and really beginning to um, appreciate the garden's beauty for something besides the green and the color um, and also appreciating what it does for the landscape and for the animals that live in it.
0: I always like to look at you know things like coneflowers in the winter if they've got a little bit of frost or snow on them. Um, and I really like the way that we get a whole nother season out of them You know, with the finches coming in. I, I used to be a, a garden cleanup person. And then one day I came in from work and there were finches all over the spent coneflower heads that I had left. And I, that was one of my aha moments. And so then I started just leaving it, but some people get a little cranky. So I figured I would throw that in. Jessica, tell people where we can find you, where they can find you. You, you lecture, and you're on the radio in um, Pittsburgh, I and can. you have yeah. that you have that on podcasts too. So you can listen to you do that show with Doug Oster.
1: I do, yeah. It's called The Organic Gardeners and this is our 10th season on air. We're on KDKA, which is the world's first radio station and we're still up and operational here in Pittsburgh. But you can listen anywhere uh, online and you can actually go to my website, which is just Jessica Walliser.com um, or just Google Jessica Walliser and come up with the website. And it, it, that has access to all of the articles that I write. I write um, for a lot of the different national gardening magazines. I write for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review uh, and then also links to the Radio show. Um, I also do a couple of blogs, and I have a lot of fun, especially on the blog posts that I get to post pictures of the different insects that I find in my garden. Uh, I blog for Hobby Farms Magazine. Uh, I'm actually their number one blog, and that, that's at just HobbyFarms.com. And I also blog with several other garden writers on a, a great little blog we have called Savvy Gardening, uh, and it's all about how to be a savvy gardener. And we have a great section on there called The Bug Chronicles, uh, which is about insects, and then obviously we have... Uh, edibles we have ornamentals and we have money saving practices uh, on the savvy gardening website as well Uh, so i'm definitely out and about on the web and i would love everybody to find me and find out more information about my books as well
0: well great and i will post um, references to your books and your website on our facebook page so people can find us there and people can find savvy gardening on facebook too can't they
1: Absolutely, yes. We have a Facebook page. We have a newsletter that goes out every two weeks. We just had one go out uh, yesterday about growing garlic. So if you're interested in signing up for the Savvy Gardening newsletter, you can do that through our Facebook page and also through uh, the website, SavvyGardening.com. Well, I will get that information up on our Facebook page. And
0: thank you so much for being with us today, Jessica. I really hope we have a chance to do this again. It's been fun, and we everybody learned so much. Thank you again. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I hope you'll join us.
2: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: I'm Marita News, and I would like to invite you to listen live or download my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio.
2: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.